This podcast is brought to you by the AUA Office of Education and its chair, Dr. Victor Nitti. To provide any feedback, please email us at education at auanet.org. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, chair of the AUA Office of Education, and welcome to another Office of Education podcast. Today, our podcast is on shared decision-making. With me today is Dr. Dan Makaroff, who is Assistant Professor of Urology, Population Health, and Health Policy at NYU School of Medicine. He serves as Director of Surgical Research in the Department of Population Health. The goal of Dan's research is to improve the quality and efficiency of care administered to men with prostate cancer. Dan also serves on the Quality Improvement Patient Safety Committee of the American Urological Association, and he recently led the effort to write a white paper on shared decision-making and to lead a quality improvement summit on the topic. So shared decision-making is becoming increasingly important in healthcare delivery and increasingly important in urologic practice because so many of the uh, conditions that we deal with really do require input from patients. So what I'd like to do is start and uh, first welcome uh, Dan Makaroff. Dan, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Vic. Pleasure to be here. And what I'd like to do is just start out by asking you, what is shared decision-making? Right. Uh, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and very basically, uh, shared decision-making can be defined as a collaborative decision-making process between patients and their health healthcare provider uh, and it's particularly relevant in, to decisions where multiple opinions are considered clinically acceptable. So how has shared decision-making been incorporated into patient care? Has it been something that is being done regularly in urology and in other areas of medicine, or is it something that um, perhaps we're not doing as well as we should or even as well as we think we should? Right. Um, so it's gotten into guidelines. Uh, in fact, I think it's on four of the current AUA guidelines. Um, and, and not just in urology, I mean, across all of medicine. Uh, but in spite of making guidelines, uh, making it to guideline statements, and in spite of most folks recognizing that it's a, a really great thing to do, uh, there is a real barrier in actually implementing it in practice. It's being done a lot less often than it should. So what are the types of conditions or clinical scenarios where shared decision-making is particularly important? Right. So that uh, shared decision-making is particularly important where the ratio of benefits to harms is uncertain or the condition is preference sensitive. So it really depends on what the patient, uh, what the patient thinks. Um, and, you know, uh, this is really applicable broadly uh, in urology. Many of the conditions that we treat uh, can be thought of in this framework. And, you know, just as an example, uh, PSA screening is a perfect, uh, is a perfect situation to look at this way. Um, you know, if at very, very basically, uh, PSA screening, we, we believe it extends life. 
but it probably, you know, uh, it, it probably harms more people than it helps, even though overall in a population it extends life. And there's certainly morbidity to the treatment. And the morbidity uh, is along uh, the long lines of quality of life. So incontinence, impotence, things like that. So uh, length of life and continence and, and, and potency aren't the same domains. So it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to say for every person how they will approach that decision. For for many many patients, say those with families, uh, uh, those who who maybe aren't interested in in uh, in uh, in intercourse or 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 other things like that, you could easily see it being a slam dunk for PSA screening and aggressive treatment. However, for others. Uh, who who maybe think uh, quality of life is more important over quantity? You could see that based on that decision, they would be less likely to to uh, undergo PSA screening. And shared decision making would be an excellent opportunity for a physician to sit down with a patient and rather than just simply uh, using a, a blanket uh, approach like screening everybody or as as what's happening now, I think in a lot of primary care offices, not screening anyone at all. Uh, to sit down with the patient, find out about the patient, what the patient thinks, uh, provide him with information, and then make an, make a, a, a decision together with the patient that's consistent with the patient's values and preferences. Now, I would bet a lot of uh, doctors uh, in general and urologists specifically would say, well, I don't have the time for that. That takes way too much time. Does it yeah. really add time or 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 not or how much well, time does it add yeah the jury is out on that. that that's it's a difficult question to answer there are certain studies that definitely show it takes longer and and obviously you're adding more things that need to happen uh with a patient uh to to you know the the to the agenda um but there's other studies that show it doesn't make a difference, and, uh, and some, uh, some studies that even show that it shortens uh, the time of the patient encounter because all of this stuff uh, doesn't have to happen when you're sitting there with the patient. A lot of this stuff could be front-loaded uh, either through the use of uh, decision coaches or decision aids. So a patient can you know, sit down and do something even at home. Uh, uh, and, and it would be uh, something like a values clarification exercise. It would teach the patient about the decision. And then the patient could come in with all of that information already having been extracted. And then instead of spending the entire clinical encounter educating the patient about PSA and telling them about, you know, the, the incidence of prostate cancer and, and, uh, and prostate cancer mortality and things like that, you can focus specifically on the patient's values because the patient already knows this stuff. So you could, you could see how it, incorporating it into a workflow like that might actually shorten the, the clinical encounter. Uh, but, but for now, uh, uh, things are up in the air. But there, there is definitely a way to make it work. Yeah, I want to come back to some of the, the decision aids that one can use. But, you know, just more in general, if, if a patient comes in, um, let's say it's a patient with prostate cancer, and I were to say, well, you have prostate cancer, and we could do this, 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 or this. And, you know, here's the side effects of this, 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 and this. Uh, right. What do you want to do? 
is that shared decision making or, or do I need to do a little bit more? Uh, and does the patient need to do a little bit more? <laughs> you got to go a little bit more. That's a good first step. I mean, that that is providing information for the patient. Uh, and uh, and and at least by providing the things and saying, what do you want to do? You're not, you know, directly influencing the patient to do one thing or another. But but to really do shared decision making, uh, there's sort of uh, th- there, there's some things that that have to happen. Uh, during that encounter, so th- there's a there's a really widely accepted definition um, uh, uh, from a, a researcher named Charles uh, um, that 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 includes these points. So uh, you have to have involvement of both the doctor and the patient in the decision making process. Both parties share information with each other. Both take steps to share in the process of building consensus through the expression of preferences. And then both the doctor and the patient agree on the decision to implement. So I think in in the case of of that that clinical encounter, uh, educating the patient is great. Uh, then the next step would be, you know, obviously to make sure that the patient understood what what you explained to him, uh, and then find out about the patient's preferences. What what does he think about uh, incontinence and impotence? What does he think about uh, you know extending the quality of life? What does he think if if he gets treated and uh, you know uh, ultimately he may not have needed treatment? Uh, all, all those things are are important to determine. And and for the most part, you know, for the most part with these decisions, there's not a right or wrong answer. You know, it's it's not like we're deciding to, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, control bleeding in the abdomen after a gunshot wound. That's not a good uh, uh, decision for for shared decision making. That's obvious. There's only one thing to do. Patient's going to die unless you do it. Uh, in at least in the scenario that that you're presenting, I imagine for that particular patient, any one of the choices would be right. There's no wrong answer, and so you know if, if you just think about it on sort of the from the standpoint of of, of ethics and, and and all of that, you would want the patient to choose based on his preferences and not based on yours as as the physician. And I think almost all physicians agree with that. It's just a question of making it happen. I, I think most physicians feel that it, that it's great to do this, but but it, it's just hard to actualize it into your practice. So there's there's two scenarios that I can think of where you where I can imagine you you, you might hit a little bit of a wall. The first is uh, the patient who says, you know, doctor, I I, I you, you I don't care about all this stuff. You just do whatever you think is is best for me. So I guess there's sort of opting out of the shared decision-making process. Um, How do you deal with it? Or is it okay to just say, you know, I I counseled the patient about it and he or she decided to let me make the decision. So shared decision-making is, is not for everyone. Certainly not all patients want uh, to engage in shared decision-making. In fact, they've, they've studied this and, and what they find is that, that certain patients who, who tend to be sicker, uh, older, uh, less well educated, they will often say that they're less interested in shared decision making. Um, however, when you study it further and, and when you present it to some of them, they often end up uh, liking it uh, and, and many of them will find value. So, you know, obviously you don't want to club anyone over the head and force them to do shared decision making. I'm not even sure how that would be possible. 
but it, it's definitely worth it to uh, to offer it to them and, and to sort of start down the line. And if it's not working, then it's not working. But but even those those studies that that had that defined the characteristics of shared decision, uh, the, the characteristics of patients, uh, and and their association with shared decision making, the the models aren't like super well predictive. So you know, if I showed you somebody who's a you know a high school dropout who is on welfare and who uh, uh, is super has very advanced. Uh, prostate cancer, something like that. It's not necessarily true that that patient will always reject shared decision making. Uh, uh, sometimes that patient will still be interested in it, and, and I think it's it's certainly the right thing to uh, to offer it to the patient. And if they don't want it after after uh, you know after some effort, that then obviously you can't force them. What do you do, or has anybody ever looked at situations where you, as the physician, um, don't feel that the patient is capable of understanding everything that he or she needs to understand in order to participate in the process. Does that happen? Is that, you know, is, is it reasonable for, uh, you know, let's have, I've adapted shared decision-making into my practice and I use it regularly. And now I have a patient and I'm just not sure that they have the ability or the the uh, perhaps the the mental capacity to sort of participate in the decision or I'm not sure that they're processing all of the information that I'm giving them is that something where you would abandon the process or modify the process or what's suggested in that sort of a scenario well you know so that that's obviously a tough patient to deal with and and uh I, I think the, the both of us have cared for patients who who seem that way um, but you know, uh, that, that's a problem regardless of whether you're using shared decision-making or not, you know, can that patient, uh, you know, give informed consent? Does, does that patient, you know, I mean, sometimes you have patients come to you that they don't even know why they've been sent there. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are ways of dealing with that. And, and, you know, you alluded to decision aids in, in, uh, earlier on, and I imagine we're going to talk about that maybe a little bit later on, but a lot of the decision aids, uh, uh there's a lot of decision aids out there. But but certain ones, in terms of the ones that that present information, certain ones present it in a better way. Uh, you know, it's obvious it's it's best to have these decision aids geared for a, a lower uh, grade level. Obviously, if someone doesn't read, then that's then that's an issue. But there are video shared decision uh, decision aids. But but there there uh, I, I think there's always a way to present. Uh, uh, so the patient has his has his preferences, you know, and and that doesn't depend, I don't think, on on great mental capacity. That that that's that's just you know how the patient feels. Everybody has feelings, you know, you know. Uh, uh, that that's one part. I, I think you know what we're focusing on is is providing information, um, and and you know we do have to alter our our approach, and we do have to present information in a way that pa that a patient understands. But that that's regardless of shared decision making or not right um but but that is a challenging patient to engage no question all right well we'll focus the rest of this talk on patients that we think really are are, uh, <laughs> are patients and doctors who are capable in participating in the process all right um, i'm out of the hot seat then <laughs> that's it uh for that um you know one thing i wanted to ask before we start to talk about some of the benefits and and maybe the downsides of shared decision making do you think that this is going to be uh, important enough in our healthcare system that it will start to get looked at and we maybe 
uh, as physicians rewarded for uh, for um, having patients um, participate in shared decision making or perhaps penalized if we don't do that? Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. So, so uh, in terms of that, in terms of the, the reward and incorporation into healthcare system, the horse is already uh, out of the barn for that. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the Institute of Medicine has been talking about shared decision-making for years, and uh, a lot of shared decision-making pro- uh, programs are built into the Affordable Care Act. So uh, it, it re- research-wise, uh, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is very interested in shared decision-making and its dissemination. Um, there's shared decision-making is an important part of um, – of uh, uh, accountable care organizations. They all have to demonstrate that they're using shared decision-making in certain scenarios. And CMS has approved shared decision-making as a reason for a patient visit. So you'll be able to bill uh, uh, an entire visit based on, obviously based on time, uh, but but for shared decision-making for for an issue or, you know, as part of the clinical encounter. So, uh, so that that's already that's already happening uh, uh, or going to be happening very soon. So it, it, it is definitely uh, part of it. And, and um, you know, not in urology right now, but CMS has been experimenting in terms of um, the use of shared decision making for lung cancer screening for smokers. Uh, they they have uh, they have incorporated that into part of their uh, part of their quality measures, and their experience with it has been very good. Um, and I have a I have a, a good friend who I who I trained with uh, during fellowship. Uh, um, who works at CMS now, uh, and she says that that that's something that they could consider going forward uh, for PSA screening. Uh, um, you know, especially after the the last debacle where they tried to just uh, you know squash right. it completely. Yeah. So let's talk about you know you've done a lot of research in this area. What are some of the obvious clear benefits of shared decision making? Right. So I think, you know, the, the most important benefits to shared decision making, they obviously lie on the patient side. So uh, so even before you get to shared decision making, patients who feel that they're, you know, empowered in their, who've participated in their healthcare decision, they feel more informed, they feel more, more empowered, uh, and they're more likely to express higher satisfaction with their care and better quality of life. So, so they're obviously going to be happier. Uh, and, you know, as we sort of track, um, uh, you know, our HCAP scores and, and press gainy, uh, this is certainly one way to move the dial on patient satisfaction. Uh, in terms specifically uh, around shared decision making, uh, the patients who engage in shared decision making are, are more knowledgeable. Uh, so, so that patient who we described who, who uh, maybe lacks some mental capacity, that patient has probably a lot to gain from shared decision making, maybe more so than somebody who's, uh, you know, an astrophysicist who's done all his research and, and uh, has read all the latest papers on prostate cancer when they come to your office. Uh, uh, additionally, uh, patients who engage in shared decision making have more realistic expectations. Uh, and that, that's obviously, uh, you know, excellent for the patient, good for the physician too, if the patients understand what the, what the downsides of the treatment are. Uh, um, uh, it's always 
always good to have realistic expectations. And, and then what, what I find is incredibly important is that, that patients tend to participate more actively in the care process, and they more frequently arrive at decisions aligned with their personal preferences. You know, you sort of, you know, you, you can't overstate that. When, when you use shared decision-making, you really bring the patient on as, as a partner in care uh, rather than somebody who's, you know, is simply a client who comes to your office and, and, and you dispense advice. It's someone who's, who's you know, on, on the team with you. And I, and I think that's what we all want as physicians. We all want that kind of relationship with patients and, and that we're all working towards a common, uh, a, a common good. You know, I, I know you've done some work in prostate cancer. And, you know, we as urologists would like to think, boy, if we uh, present prostate cancer patients with all of the necessary information, um, particularly as their disease becomes more uh, aggressive, um, that they are going to be more likely to um, maybe elect treatment or elect aggressive treatment. Is that true? Or uh, does uh, uh, in, in prostate cancer specifically, uh, does uh, information, patients armed with information sometimes um, cause them to maybe back off of treatment. Yeah, uh, sometimes it, it definitely can cause them to, to back off of treatment. But again, that's backing off of treatment that they feel uh, th that's consistent with their own values. Um, that research that, that you're alluding to uh, is, is pretty interesting. Uh, um, uh, it, it showed that you know when patients got balanced presentation. Actually, this is like a meta-analysis of nine studies that uh, when patients were presented with benefits and harms of of this kind of stuff of prostate cancer uh, uh, um, screening in particular, uh, that in six of nine studies, patients were less likely to go for screening. Uh, and they had increased preference for watchful waiting as compared to uh, as compared to aggressive treatment. Now, I wonder actually how that will play out given uh, the increased utilization of, uh, of active surveillance these days. There was that big article in, uh, in the New York Times, uh, Gina Collada noted, noting that, uh, that trend and the several abstracts and recent articles, uh, both at the AUA and, and, and in publication that looked at that. So I wonder if, if that's changed, but, but back, back when, they, they definitely demonstrated that. Um, now, th there's, a, there's a, an interesting paradox with, with a recent study that that actually looked at patients' understanding of the risks and the harms of PSA screening. And it found that patients who understanded the harms of PSA screening were still more likely to choose uh, to choose PSA screening uh, than those with less knowledge. Uh, and I think that's I think that's very important that there are obviously different populations and it's uh, and it's it's hard maybe to reconcile those 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 two bits of information together. But I think we're always on sure footing when when we help patients when we help patients understand the clinical problem and help them understand how their values align with a potential decision that they're about to make in their health care. So so far, it all seems to make sense, but obviously there must be some downsides to shared decision making uh, what do you see as the you know three or four major downsides of it yeah 
we've we've really been sort of hitting on them uh, uh, as we go. You know, uh, uh, it's while while most physicians really support the use of shared decision making, it's really very rarely used. Um, we don't know exactly how often, but we know that uh, you know when you look at men coming out after PSA after having had PSA screening. Only 50% said that the benefits of PSA screening was discussed during the encounter. Fewer, something like 10 to 15%, uh, say that the downsides were even discussed during the visit. So it's it's really not being used in practice. And and this isn't all on urologists. This is mostly, I imagine, uh, in a primary care setting where they looked at it. So it's not happening that much. Again, some patients may not desire it, but still probably worth a try. And I think, you know, to implement it into practice, it's not just like saying I'm going to order a new blood test uh, uh, or, or do something, you know, that's a simple tweak of your practice. It probably, it requires sort of a, a systems level change at your practice. It's not just you as a physician doing it. You know, you need to engage the front office staff. They need to be able to get decision aids to patients, uh, or you need to engage your nurses to, to, be, to help the patients to do some decision coaching. Uh, the, there's, there's probably some resource. It, it, certainly, the implementation would, would go more smoothly if there were some resources that could be brought to bear on the, on the problem. Um, and, and so, you know, that probably makes it a challenge uh, for, for the smaller individual practitioner. Um, uh, but, but, you know, the way medicine is moving, we're sort of, uh, uh, all consolidating into, into larger entities. And I think, you know, in order to, to do this, uh, to do it right, it is going to require some resources as we, as we change, uh, the workflows in our practice and, 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 and change the paradigm for how we deliver this care. So that's a definite downside. But it, it's, I, I think it's still a, a worthwhile goal for all the reasons that we discussed. Uh, and, and again, you know, we, we're doing it, we're here to help patients. And, and this, is, this is one very tangible, very clear, uh, clear way to do that. So now let's say after listening to this podcast, I've decided I, I really need to do, do more incorporation of shared decision making in my practice. What do I start to do? We, we've spoke about decision aids, and it seems like th these are things that could cut down on the amount of time that I might have to spend directly speaking to a patient in order to educate that patient ahead of time. Exactly. Um, what, right. what, are, what are some decision aids that have been used in this process? So uh, the AUA is really on top of – so AUA was one of the first uh, – one of the the first, uh, uh, you know, professional societies to uh, to adopt shared decision making. Uh, you know, in the in the '90s, uh, the, the AUA developed several decision aids around uh, around BPH uh, uh, treatment. So so AUA has always been involved. Uh, but recently, obviously, with with uh, with this push and shared decision making in, in our guidelines and the white paper, uh, the AUA has uh, has has funded and, and, and made made an effort to um, to uh, make it easier for urologists to implement shared decision making in their practice. So uh, so we have this white paper that, that's available through the AUA website on on implementation of shared decision making into practice uh, it, there. It lists the AUA doesn't endorse any one particular decision aid. There's a number of great ones out there, uh, and and there's links to websites like uh, um, the um, OHRI uh, uh, website, Ottawa Health. 
you guys might need to edit this part out. I forgot what it stands for, but uh, uh, the the ORI or ORHRI website lists a bunch of of high quality decision aids that you can go and choose uh, and, and decide which one is best for your practice and which one is best for uh, uh, for your patients. Um, so so though, and and many of those are free. So you could just download them, photocopy them, and 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 use them in your practice. Um, uh, there's also uh, there's also resources available from uh, from organizations like the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Um, they uh, they will come out and and uh, and give talks, and they provide a toolkit for uh, for implementing shared decision making into practice. There's a lot of help out there. Uh, uh, you can do it with minimal out of pocket costs, but there's really uh, obviously there's no way to to uh, avoid when you're doing sort of organizational uh, transformation, the, the time uh, and effort that it would take to, to implement it. But the resources are, are, are out there. You know, Dan, one thing that, that comes to my mind is I would think that um, a, a practice that implements shared decision-making would be viewed favorably by patients. It, it, seems, to make, it seems to make sense yeah. to me. Are, have any, has it, are there any studies that actually show patient satisfaction with practices that utilize a shared decision-making model? Because, you know, as we move forward, it's so important as to uh, how patients perceive their care and the quality of their care. I'm just wondering if there's any study that's been done where one can say, hey, you know, if you, if you, bring shared decision-making into your practice, your patients are going to feel better about the care they're getting. So th that's definitely been done on an individual level. Um, it's, it's a great question to see whether it moves the dial at like a practice level. You know, does, does the overall, do patients' ratings of, of their entire experience with that practice change? D definitely their perception of the quality of their own care changes and it improves uh, in, the, in the individual thing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think having, having the kind of data that, 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 you're, that, you're, at, that you're asking about, I, I think that would be very compelling. Uh, in theory, it's already out there. Uh, but but it, you know maybe if it were demonstrated more clearly at the practice level, then it would be much more um, uh, m you know much more uh, enticing uh, uh, for for practices to adopt it. You know, and I know we we've, we've we've chatted about prostate cancer, we've chatted about PSA screening, but I can tell you that I can tell you that uh, in my own practice uh, and in my female pelvic medicine practice, um, uh, we do. Uh, myself and my my colleagues do incorporate shared decision making into many of the things that we do. Um, spend a lot of time with patients because we do in treating certain conditions, whether it's overactive bladder, whether it's stress incontinence, whether it's pelvic organ prolapse. There really are many options with absolutely with with different expectations, different potential for side effects, and uh, you know. I, it, it's my belief that that our patients are much happier, even when they when they don't have the outcome that they want. If it was discussed ahead of time that well, by pursuing this particular line of treatment or diagnosis or whatever, um, that that certain things could happen. And if those things do happen, I think the informed patient is um, is less affected by let's say a a negative outcome. 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just common sense. It's just common sense, good clinical practice. Uh, it, it just so happens that it's so important that you know a lot of the social scientists have gotten into the field and and they've uh, they've they're un- they're trying to understand why it works, how it works, how best to make it work at a very um, at a very rigorous level. And that's why you have some of this language. That's why you have all this stuff. This isn't a hard thing to do. This is this is you know for for the most part this is this is the straightforward obvious thing to do for for um uh, for patient care uh, and uh, I, I think maybe when 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 uh, when physicians view it like that this this is stuff that oftentimes we're already doing some of it but we could do it better in in a more systematic way in a way that reaches our patients more effectively you know you don't have to recreate the wheel every time the the nice thing is that the research is out there to tell you sort of the the most streamlined way in which to do it so if we want to sum up you know can you give me four or five key points um to overcome barriers to shared decision-making, to overcome barriers of implementing um, decision aids into one's practice? Sure. Um, I think uh, the first thing that, that we need to do is, is educate physicians and patients uh, about shared decision-making uh, and its benefits. Um, I, I think anyone who who looks into this, uh, both physicians and patients, I, I, I think they'll. I think there's there's broad consensus that this is that this is the way to go. Uh, uh, you know, there, there may be there may be some drawbacks, but but I think everybody recognizes that this is a good thing to do. Um, uh, I think in terms of uh, of implementing it, uh, it's important to enlist institutional leaders to support integration into routine practice. You know, if, if, if it's, if you're a small group practice or solo practitioner, then, then maybe that's you as a urologist. But, you know, if you're, if you're at NYU or, or if you're at an academic center, maybe that's your chair or, or higher up in the Dean's office institutionally or, or, or one of the practice managers, uh, uh, in in a private group, but, but enlisting institutional leaders on, uh, you know, to be on board with this process is is critical. Um, next, uh, next, I think it's important to discuss where to find resources to implement it because it's it's not a freebie. You know, and and physician time, uh, uh, even though sometimes it may be undervalued by uh, by by those in leadership, is is a very uh, it's a very valuable thing. So if we're engaging in it, then we should have the support uh, to do it, and 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 that's the right thing to do to to make it work. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, people should be aware of the resources that are out there. Uh, that's all available in, uh, in, in the white paper. Um, uh, but those resources are out there as we discussed. Uh, and I think another key point is, you know, from, from, uh, this, from the standpoint of AUA and other funding organizations, funding research on how to best implement, uh, shared decision-making into practice is incredibly important. Uh, and during, during the quality improvement summit, you, you know, th- those were some of the points that came out. Uh, and I think one of the, one of sort of the, the final frontiers is really sort of how to implement it into practice without significant workflow disruption, uh, th- there's the people have figured it out for themselves, but is there, is there an easy way to do this or, or, or a toolkit or a way to figure out which approaches work? Uh, uh, and, and research can help us answer those questions. Great. Well, Dan, I want to, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, enlighten us about shared decision-making. I want to thank the audience for listening. Um, I also want to encourage um, 
uh, you all to uh, to read the AUA white paper on implemented implementation of shared decision making into urologic practice. You can find it um, on the AUA website uh, under the guidelines section, and then further under the uh, the white paper section uh, of of that. Um, if you have uh, for more information. Uh, visit uh, www.auanet.org slash university, um, where there are many tools on the AUA University, um, uh, many learning tools on the AUA University as well. Um, again, uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, thanks to the audience, and we look forward to you listening into our next podcast. Thanks, Rick.